Hi, and welcome law firm owners to another episode of the Wildly Successful Law Firm podcast. So today I'm doing a special episode and that's a Q&A episode. My team has gone through and written down a whole bunch of questions that come up a lot in the DMs. I'm trying to make these questions centered around a certain topic. So today it'll be clients and pricing and everything inside of that vein. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Okay, so before I present you with the first question and of course my answer, I wanted to take a second and talk to you a little bit about your mindset. So no, I'm not a coach but I do understand that this holds a lot of really good lawyers and law firm owners back. And the mindset there is if I'm charging too much, I'm going to turn away clients. If clients refuse to work with me, then it means that I'm charging too much and anything else inside of that vein. And, and also, you know, of course, Um, who am I to say no to good clients, right? If a client comes to me, I want to work with them and I have to work with everyone who comes to me. So a lot of this conversation honestly doesn't have much to do with who you are as an attorney, what kind of attorney you are, and if you're even good at what you do. A lot of this has to do with how you value yourself, how you see yourself and the level of experience and expertise that you bring to the table. That's one part of it. The second part of it is the scarcity mindset. So for years, lawyers have had a scarcity mindset, which is that there aren't enough clients, there isn't enough work to go around, so it ultimately falls on price. And if I want to make money doing this, then my price has to be competitive. Not only does it have to be competitive, it has to be below market for me to actually feel like it's competitive, right? So one, the scarcity mindset can be really, really dangerous. And honestly, it's, It's present in all law firm owners to some extent or another. And, you know, maybe after years working with a coach, maybe after years of being in therapy, you can get past this. But my two cents to you right now is this. You have to stop believing that there isn't enough work out there for someone who has your skill set. You have to stop believing that there aren't enough clients who need citizenship or divorce or you know incorporation documents or estate documents fill in the blank those clients do exist and if you keep going into your day-to-day work hanging up with clients having potential client calls where you are just getting frustrated and you're just saying to yourself God, there's not enough business out there for what I do. There aren't enough people who need my services along with all the other lawyers who are out there. It's just not true. And, you know, step number one, you have to get rid of that mindset. You can't 
sit here and think that there isn't enough work to go around because the reality is there's a lot of legal work to go around and there are a lot of people who need legal services. The reality is that oftentimes they're too scared to approach a lawyer or oftentimes they don't even know that they need a lawyer, right? So it, there is no scarcity of clients. There is no scarcity of business, right? This is something that you either heard somewhere in another practice from another law firm owner, if you heard it, you know, maybe as a child growing up, you know, whatever it is, like you have to let go of that scarcity mindset because that's just not the case, right? Now, the second part of this is actually valuing yourself and what you do. Now, think about everything that you went through to become a lawyer. You went to undergrad, you went to law school, but before you went to law school, you sat for the bar for the LSAT, right? And you maybe took an LSAT prep course and then you got into law school. Maybe you applied to a bunch of places. I know I personally applied to like 10 different law schools and the cost of doing those applications was close to like a thousand dollars between the application cost, getting it in the mail, ordering transcripts, all of that. You know, my LSAT prep course plus the cost of taking the LSAT not once but twice. In addition to my very expensive undergrad, I went to Emory undergrad. And then on top of that, law school, right? You get to law school, you actually have to pay for it. And that was three years of living out of state, which was incredibly expensive. And then there was the bar prep, right? I paid for Barbary like year three instead of year one. And year three, when I paid for Barbary, it was like almost $4,000 to pay for it. So there's another prep course. And then the bar exam itself was almost like $1,000 when I went to take it. So when you add up all of this, right, not just the money that you've spent on becoming a lawyer, but the time, the energy, you know, seven years of your life, eight years, you know, for some people, if you took a year off in between, if you interned a year in between, it's a really t long time investment that you put into becoming a law firm owner. And I don't want you to discount your services given the number of years it has taken you just to be able to say you are a lawyer, right? I mean, keep in mind, not only did you have to pass the bar exam, but then you had to actually be approved by your state bar. Like that was a whole other hurdle that you had to go through. Then you had to be sworn in. Then, and then only were you officially a practicing attorney, right? You couldn't call yourself an attorney until that point. You couldn't have the ESQ behind your name until you went through all those steps. You were just a JD until you went through all of those steps. So look, I want you to know that it is a really difficult process to become a lawyer. And oftentimes I think you forget that because you're usually around other lawyers and you know, it doesn't feel like your experience was that different from everyone else's, but the truth is it was because you've gone through a lot more school than, than a lot of the people that you might be working with, right? 
Okay, so you've gone through all this school. You've spent all of this money to invest in your legal career to be able to call yourself a lawyer. I don't want you to graduate and then charge $50 an hour for doc review or for basic contracts or whatever because you feel like, oh, you're not experienced enough or you know, there's other people who charge less and you need to stand out in the competition. That's just not true, okay? You have to charge your worth and you have to believe that you are worth $3,000 for that contract that you wrote, $5,000 for that estate plan, or whatever your fee is that you're charging, you know, $7,000 for a trademark application. You have to believe that you are worth that amount of money and that comes internally, but it also comes from you realizing that you've been through a lot to get to where you are today. And you didn't just wake up one morning and then become a lawyer. You didn't just wake up and sit for the bar exam. You went through all of this to become an attorney and then to get the experience that you have so that you can provide the services that you provide today. So I really want you to keep in mind that as we're talking about clients and pricing and all of this, I want you to have a mindset of you, law firm owner, are totally worth whatever you are going to charge. Whatever that number is, don't feel like you have to justify it. You're worth that by the fact that you've done all the things that you've done up until this point to get to that point, right? Okay, so let's get into question number one. All right, should I keep a PETA client. As you all know, you know what PETA stands for. I lovingly call PETA clients vampire clients. So a vampire client is someone who is difficult, who makes you chase them around for responses, for money, someone who is rude to your team, someone who doesn't talk to you respectfully. You know, it's just a really difficult client, is a vampire client. They sort of suck all of the energy out of you and by the time you're done talking to them, you just wanna call it quits for the day, right? Okay, so difficult clients, right? Now, I don't know your financial situation, so I'm gonna speak in sort of generic terms, right? If you are dire for money, this is your only client that you have, you're literally this client or broke, then yes, obviously the recommendation would be keep the client, right? However, if you are not at the point of being broke without this client, if you have other clients, if you are doing other forms of networking, if you are, you know, investing in SEO and you're just waiting for it to turn on and to start working, I think that you have to let go of your vampire clients. You have to gently let them go. And you can make a list of who these clients are and you will start to see trends and patterns between them. And it could be that they are all, you know, female executives in the C-suite who, you know, never respond to your requests in time. And you're just like, you know what, I, I can't keep spending all of my time chasing you around for answers and then filing extensions because you're not responding to me in the appropriate time, you know, maybe you start to see that as a pattern. Maybe you start to see another pattern, which is, okay, I'm a personal injury attorney and all of my vampire clients are, 
you know, students who are either in college or in grad school because their schedule is so difficult to schedule, you know, a deposition or hearings and they're just too difficult to work with. And I understand that they've been hurt in a car accident, but they're just not clients that I can take on anymore. That's totally okay. Make a list of who your vampire clients are. Trust me, they will stand out as your vampire clients. You're not gonna have to think hard about who your difficult clients are. That's the funny thing, right? Like you always know off the top of your head, oh, this client is difficult, right? You always just, you know that inside of you. So you won't have to think too hard about it, but definitely make a list of them. Try to see if there's trends and patterns. You know, obviously if you're dire, desperate for money, two steps from being broke, then don't let go of that PETA client because obviously you need money to survive. However, if you have other clients, if you are really just starting to see that maybe you don't need this client, maybe they're not worth the hassle, definitely let that vampire client go. And let me also tell you why it's important to let go of vampire clients. When you have vampire clients, they're draining your energy. They're sucking everything out of you. You're just miserable. You're wondering why you even started your own practice. They really make you sort of question all of the reasons that you're doing what you're doing. And I want you to know that when you hold on to bad clients, you're sort of saying, okay, I'm willing to deal with this. I'm willing to tolerate this. And here's the price at which I'm willing to tolerate this. But in reality, how much is your time and your energy and your peace actually worth? Is it really worth $300 an hour? It's probably worth way more than that, right? And when you look at your client roster and you start sweeping out these vampire clients, slowly but surely over time, you're like, you know, I'm not working with this person anymore. I'm not working with this person anymore. When you start getting rid of your bad clients, what ultimately ends up happening is you now have space in your client roster. And at first it feels uncomfortable. You're like, oh, this makes me feel really sick to my stomach. How am I going to um, you know, make sure I can still put money into my savings next month? How am I going to you know, uh, buy this new car? How am I going to you know, bring on this new associate that I wanted to bring on if I let go of these, these you know, three not great clients? Here's what happens. The space on your roster has been cleared up. Your mind is now cleared up as well, right? You're not stressed about this client reaching out to you in the middle of the night. You're not thinking, oh my God, I better respond to this client. Otherwise they're gonna file a bar complaint and I just can't have that on my record right now. Whatever the story is, right? I want you to know that once you've cleared out that space, you've got mental space as well. What usually ends up happening to my clients is this, and I, and I kid you not, they come back to me and they're like, Nermeen, I wish I listened to you earlier. I wish I let go of that client earlier. Number one, when they're at networking events, wherever they are next, they end up bringing on a new client that they could not have brought on otherwise because of the space that the vampire clients were taking up. Number one, that happens. The other thing that happens is they're already existing clients. When they're on a call with them, they're like, hey, by the way, this immigration paperwork is complete. I'm gonna send it to you in the mail. You know, Take a look at it. If you have any questions, let me know. But the forms are filed, everything is ready to go. That client then says, oh wow, this is so amazing. Well, by the way, 
I have a sister, I have a brother, I have a coworker who's also looking for someone like you who can help them with this area of law and could really use your help. And I would love to introduce you. Then you can absolutely be open to that because you are sort of in that space of bringing on new clients and mentally that's what you're putting out there and that's actually what's coming back to you either through your own client list or through your referral partners and just your own daily interaction. So as a general rule, yes, you should let go of difficult slash vampire slash PETA clients. It's just not worth it. The pool is big enough of potential clients and the amount of work that you could do for your current clients is probably big enough that if you got rid of the bad clients and just focused your energy on that and being a better service provider to your already existing audience and your already existing client base, you would end up getting more work from them and they would be very happy to send you more work. So just keep that in mind as you are you know, deliberating, okay, should I keep this bad client or should I not keep this bad client? Okay, so let's go to the next question. This is something that's come up quite a bit lately, but this is a specific example, but it probably will also apply to you and that comes to referral partners. Okay, so this person said, I'm a real estate attorney, I have my own practice. I work with a lot of realtors and one particular realtor is incredibly difficult, but she sends me a lot of business. Now, my experience with her is that she is rude and short and often very sloppy when it comes to real estate closings. What do I do? Okay, so in this case, it's not a PETA client, it's like a PETA referral partner, right? And referral partners are really interesting because once you've developed the relationship, that one relationship can literally give you tons of business every single year. In the case of like a realtor and a real estate attorney, that's like sort of a perfect marriage, if you will, right? The realtor needs an attorney who can get the closing done on time, get you know, the title cleared, get everything opened in escrow, like really just be on top of everything. That really benefits the realtor because then the house closes faster and they get their commission even faster. So it's in the best interest of a realtor to have a really good working relationship with a real estate agent. It's also a really great benefit for a real estate agent to have a network of really good realtors, especially if they're busy realtors, right? Like if they are sending you five, six closings every single month, that's an amazing relationship to have that's literally paying you thousands of dollars every month. Multiply that by 12 months. I mean, that one person could be bringing in well over six figures to your law practice. So you're thinking to yourself, okay, Nermeen, this is not some one-off $5,000, $10,000 client. This is a $100,000, $50,000 a year referral partner that pays itself year over year over year. Now, here's the thing. I would never tell you to cut off that relationship. However, 
there is something about that relationship that I think you should consider inside of sort of self-worth and respect, right? Yeah, $100,000 is really nice, but you know what's really nice and even better than $100,000 is someone who works with you in a respectful way is understanding of the value that you bring, understands that this is a lucrative relationship for both sides and for it to be truly successful, not just financially successful, but for it to be truly successful, it takes work on both sides. So my recommendation would be as follows in this situation. Number one, absolutely 1000% have a conversation with this realtor because they may not even be aware of how they're coming off to you. Oftentimes people assume that, hey, we're lawyers, we're tough, we can take it, right? Like you wanna call us up and curse us out and you know we can just roll with the punches the next day like it's no big deal. Oftentimes people assume that about lawyers, but the truth is that some of us happen to be a little bit more sensitive and it doesn't matter if you're sensitive or not. No one wants to be on the phone with someone who's cursing them out and is being incredibly rude and demanding. Well, you got to get this closing done. You got to get it done by this date. I don't care who else is scheduled that day. You need to schedule me. I'm a very important realtor for you. No one, no one enjoys that level of experience. So what I would do is I would have a serious one-on-one -on -one in-person conversation with that realtor. I recommend it being in person without alcohol. So lunch, dinner, coffee, something like that. And just be straight with this person. Say, hey, listen, I've noticed that the last few times that you've asked me to do things, you know, it's been really under the gun. It's been a little sloppy and that's not the quality of work that I want to provide to you. I you know, respect myself and the services that my team and I provide or that I provide. And I really want to continue working with you. And I would really appreciate it if we just created a little bit more structure around how this relationship would go. So number one, you know, I will always do my best in trying to get you scheduled. But if I have other things that day, I have other things that day and there's no way I can schedule you in. But rest assured, I'm gonna do my best to try to get you in as soon as possible because this commission benefits both of us, right? Second, try to create some boundaries if that's what you feel like is needed. No communication on my personal cell phone. We really have to use my business cell phone. No communication on my personal email. We really have to use you know, my business email. Let them know that you know there are certain boundaries around this relationship and also make them feel valued. So you not only enjoy the professional relationship, but that you value them as a person. That doesn't mean you're saying, hey, I wanna be your best friend. You're absolutely not saying that, but you are just having a real conversation with them that they can understand sort of what your, where your frustrations are. The other thing I would recommend is if there's someone else in the office that you could be talking to their right-hand person, their COO, their office manager, whoever it is, let them know that, you know, it would maybe even be easier to communicate with them because this realtor is so busy that they don't have time to make the calls. And if, you know, they just want the office manager to schedule this, then sure, that's possible as well. 
So again, try to come up with creative solutions around this where both of you guys can continue to benefit from this financial partnership, but also do it in a way that they understand that you're still a human being and there are certain ways that you prefer being spoken to and the way that has happened in the past doesn't really work for you. So try that on, let me know how that goes and we will move on to the last question here for today. Okay, so how do I justify my fees to a client? Okay, this is a really good question and it has a lot to do with what we've talked about so far. So instead of getting into the sort of what, what your value is and all of that, let me talk to you about how you even can come up with your prices, right? So you have to look at the market that you're in. You have to look at your area of expertise. In other words, what is your practice area itself? And you also have to look at the results that you've been able to get for your clients in this. And you have to look at how many years of experience you have. So let me give you a couple of examples here. If you are an attorney that is in Los Angeles and you are a family attorney and you are a new family attorney, right? You practiced big law in New York, now you've moved back to LA and you decided you wanna open up a family law office. Great, fantastic. Now, are you going to be able to realistically charge $500 an hour even though you're in LA? I'm gonna go ahead and say no, because you have no experience in that specific field of law. Now, let's change the facts a little. Let's say you're that same attorney, except that you practiced law in New York for a boutique family office, family law office, and you've now moved to LA to start your own practice in family law. You had five years of experience. You helped uh, hedge fund managers. Uh, you helped baseball players get divorces, et cetera, et cetera, right? You've, you've got a good client list and a good list of experiences that you had prior to this. And now you're coming to LA hoping to start your own family law practice then yeah, I would say you could be closer to that 400 to 500 range, even though you've never had your own practice before. The fact that you had previous experience that you can point to, that you can say, hey, I worked with this hedge fund manager and we didn't go to court. We litigated, we agreed to everything before anything had to go to litigation. I saved that hedge fund, not the money because the hedge fund manager doesn't really care about the money, but I saved them negative publicity in the press, which in turn allowed the hedge fund to keep the money as assets under management because nothing was questioned, right? Okay, so in that example, yes, you can absolutely charge you know, closer to the $500 range or more, right? Okay, so let's do another example. Let's say that you are an estate planning attorney and you've relocated from New York to Boise, Idaho, 
which by the way, a lot of people did relocate during the pandemic. And I have heard this story specifically many times and I've had a lot of questions from people around, well, what can I charge? So let's say at New York at Big Law, you were being billed out at $600 an hour, right? You had a nice, beautiful salary of let's say $250,000 a year. Okay, can you then bill $600 an hour in Boise, Idaho? No, you can't. That absolutely has everything to do with the area that you are in. I'm not sure how many attorneys in Boise, Idaho charge $600 an hour, but I can tell you that based on just the general population of the people that are in Idaho, uh, the, the home values, just everything there, you are not going to be able to get away with your normal New York rate of $600 an hour. Now, here's the caveat. If you are in Boise, Idaho, and you live there, but you are practicing some federal area of law, like let's say patent and, or you are doing some sort of compliance, whether it's ISDA or uh, Dodd-Frank, whatever it is, right? And you are still going to be a service provider to a lot of those New York based companies, then yeah, you can still charge $600 an hour because your clients are still the same hedge funds who can afford those rates they are still people who are familiar and totally comfortable with paying that amount. Now, if you move to Boise and you're a practicing family law, then more than likely you will have to end up creating a pricing structure that is similar or in line with whatever your market rates are, right? So if another Boise Idaho attorney, family law attorney is charging, you know, 150 to $200 an hour, that's going to sort of be your benchmark that other people are comparing you to, right? Now, my ultimate recommendation in this situation would be instead of pricing by the hour to find a better fee for service, flat fee arrangement here so that you then can really stand out from your competition because when people are coming to, in this situation, get a divorce, get a better child custody arrangement or more child support, what worries them, what stops them from pursuing these claims is the billable hour because they have no idea how many hours it's going to take. So to get the client in that audience, answer their concern. Their concern is we don't know how much this is gonna cost. When you give a flat rate on it, when you say, okay, to get A, B, and C done is going to cost this dollar amount, they will feel much better and they will more than likely then want to work with you because you just made them feel reassured about how much it was gonna cost, that it's not gonna be, you know, $150 an hour, but I don't know how many hours it's gonna take, right? Like you're telling them it's gonna be $750 and these are the three things that $750 will get you. That makes people feel a lot more comfortable than 
$150 an hour and it could take five hours or it could take 20 hours, right? Like that is very concerning for a lot of people. So if you can just get it done for X price and it's a flat rate, you're gonna end up standing up from the competition in that scenario and probably getting a lot more business. So, okay, that is everything on the Q&A list for today. Here it is again. It was a lot of fun answering your questions. If you have other questions, please feel free to email me. Please feel free to reach out to me. I'm gonna keep doing these monthly Q&As so that you can hear how I respond to things and I can specifically answer your questions about your lab practice and the interesting scenarios that are going on. That's everything for today. Thank you so much for listening in lawyers. Until next time, bye.